looking at spiritual disciplines. We're stuck on study for a while because we've been uh, looking at the Word of God, helping us to understand all the way from the manuscripts that were written, compiled, made into translations, and how those translations have come about and the differences between them, uh, to look at the translations as a good thing to have so many of them, to be able to use them to compare uh, some of the nuances and wonderful things that are in the original language that the Bible was written in. Uh, we've been looking at the word study, and it's the same definition that we've had, engaging our minds with the objective word of God to take that order or the things in it into ourselves, enabling us to be in sync with reality in a way that is good for us and for others. That's the purpose of study, is that we want to be in sync with what God says is real, what God says is important, what God says is eternal. Am I rightly related to that? Am I rightly related to him according to his word? Not how I feel, not what others think, but according to his word. Last week we looked at a couple um, verses or um, I guess areas of, of Bible study, and one was the role of the Holy Spirit. And in that, we looked at this verse, and this is the Weiss translation, which is a little bit uh, choppy, but it really catches the spirit of the verse. Uh, but as for you, the anointing, or that portion of the Holy Spirit plays, which you receive from him, remains in you. And no need are you constantly having that anyone be constantly teaching you. But even as his anointing teaches you concerning all things, all all things, and is true and is not a lie. And even as he taught you, be constantly abiding in him. We have a teacher, an internal teacher, to take those things that come out of our Bible study, that come out of the word of God, and apply them. Give us spiritual heartburn. Uh, to take the words of a text and have something happen within our hearts that doesn't happen when we read any other kind of literature. To change us at our very foundation. That's what God's Spirit does 24-7 anytime we let him have complete control and reign in our lives. But we also looked at the role of sweat. What am I supposed to do with this Bible that I have? Uh, do I put it under my pillow and let it soak in? Uh, do I read a verse and say, oh, I guess this is what it means and move on? Uh, but the scripture here says, 2 Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What God is saying for a workman, that is us who are believers, is that we are to get, be zealous, be diligent, sweated out with the scriptures to make sure that we're in them and properly or rightly handling them. Uh, that there's a lot to be said with that. We're going to look at a segment of that today. Probably the most important thing in handling the word of truth. We looked at some study tools they don't replace the Bible, but they're things that can help us in the interpretation and rightly dividing the word of truth. We looked at websites. They're all over the place, some much better than others, but things that we can go to to help us understand the Bible and the word of God. I just alluded to it quickly at the end, and I want to start with those this morning, that as we begin to study the word of God, a couple things are very important. Number one, is that we start in prayer. Anytime you come to the word of God, pray first. Pray, pray, pray. And there's several reasons for it. 
Obviously, on the surface, Lord, help me understand this. Uh, help, help me stay awake because I don't read well. It's hard for me to stay engaged. There's a lot of things you can pray about, but primarily, am I on good terms with the teacher? Am I doing anything that's going to hinder the Holy Spirit's work? Because if I am, I need to get that right. Because if these are spirit-taught things, then I need to be in good relationship with the spirit. But also, is there any sin that I obviously know about and I'm clinging and I'm not getting rid of? Sin will cloud your vision. The old saying is, sin will keep you from the book or the book will keep you from sin. When I have sin in my heart, I am clouded. And chances are, I'm going to come to the scriptures with a presupposition. In other words, I want to justify my sin. I want to change the scriptures a little bit. So as I go to read and I've got sin in my life, I want to make that sin a little softer, a little easier, or reinterpret something to make my sin okay. And that happens all the time today. And you'll see people who, who the God, words, God has spoken about what sexuality is and, and how it's to be practiced and where it's supposed to be. And people come out of the scriptures with all kinds of crazy things to say, oh, God's really okay with this. Well, Jesus didn't really talk about this very much, so it's not a big deal. If there's sin in my heart, I will not understand and see God's word correctly. And sin distracts my, or detracts my, from my passion for the word of God. You will find, as I find, when I am not rightly related to God, my hunger and my desire for his word is greatly quenched. When I am alive to him, I'm alive to his word. But when there's something not right, I am not drawn to his word. Secondly, for your mind, and this is how we ended last week, when you study the Bible, never read a Bible verse. Now that sounds a little counterintuitive, and I'm going to unpack what I mean by that today. Uh, this phrase has been made popular uh, by Gregory Kokel, and he is the one in his a pamphlet that he has, said if he were to talk to anyone about Bible study, that this would be the most important thing he would ever teach anyone about studying the Word, is to never read a Bible verse. Now, he's not saying don't read the Bible. He's talking about context. Those things that are around that verse, those things in the verse, the culture and so forth that we're going to look at behind it. One person has said, D.A. Carson, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Basically, you can make this Bible say almost anything you want it to. You can twist the scripture. You can take a verse here and take a verse there and put them together in a way that they were never meant to, to justify certain behaviors, to the, a way that you want to go, and, and it happens all the time. So we're going to talk about context, that context in Bible study is king and the most important definer of words that there is. Probably all of you have humorous stories where you caught just part of a conversation or you thought you heard what somebody said and you stopped in your tracks and your head has turned, what did you say? And you need a context for it. 
you need to have it interpreted correctly because if you just take that part of the story that you just heard, there's some problems. And there's some great stories to tell other people because this is a newsflash. You know, you need the whole thing. And, and, and just a couple humorous illustrations. We have this phrase, I'm sorry and my bad mean the same thing, right? True, mostly, would you say? And they, hey, my bad. Unless you're at a funeral. Think through that. Context makes a difference when we interpret something. Or some of you that have an old TV background and you can read this, this is the librarian humor. There's a couple here that say, not. All right, some of you are like, what are those weird old people talking about there? You have a context for that. You remember that TV show. And when you see that for someone that doesn't have that context, they're like, that's not even alphabetical order. What's the problem there? That doesn't work. There's all kinds of times that context means a lot. For instance, could you imagine going into the doctor's office? <laughs> That's where it was. Not a good context. There's more to the story. Or if you're out hiking and you see a sign that says, beware of falling deer. Now you're going to like, what? Deer don't fall. But then you read the rest of the sign, and it says leopards conceal their unfinished food in the tops of trees. <laughs> Do you see any more context behind that? Why isn't there a sign about leopards? <laughs> you know, I was like, wow, that's what I'm really afraid of. I'm not, I'll get hit in the head by a deer hindquarter. You know, that's okay. I just don't want the leopard to make lunch out of me. You see, context means an awful lot. So the question or the exercise that I want to ask you as we begin, and I'm not looking for answers, but I'm asking you what is or could you write down your method for Bible study? Your method for Bible study. What do you do? Write it out. Just challenge yourself to see the steps that you take. For some, I read, I pray, and then I read. For others, I read and I have a commentary, perhaps, that I read to help me understand it. For some, I read and I listen to a podcast. Others say I read and skip what doesn't make sense. And maybe I'll remember to ask somebody at some point. Um, there's all different methods. Some have maybe a more elaborate method. Now, I'm not talking about normal Bible reading, where you might just have some time, you pick up the scriptures to read some of it. I'm talking about when you are taking the time to invest to go into the scriptures to look for the treasures that are there. And I would challenge you, when you put that down, you've written it down and say, here's how I study the scriptures, to look at a couple books. And a couple books I have put on the back counter for you to look at, but there's a couple of them and this is one in particular that if you're just uh, wanting to dig deeper into the Word of God, I would highly recommend that book. And it's K. Arthur, David Arthur. This is a great book on Bible study. And I challenge you to take whatever method of study you wrote down and take a book like this and look at it and say, how is what I'm doing work with those that kind of have put in writing the methods of Bible study that the church has used for, for centuries? Take a look at that. There's other ones, 
and there's all different levels of study wherever you're beginning. New believer, seasoned believer, there's different books. Howard Hendricks has a great one called Living by the Book. There's a copy of that back there with a workbook that you can use to help in methods of Bible study. If you've studied a lot of scripture and you're kind of a little further in your studies, this is a great book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. There are all kinds of tools out there for digging into the scriptures because what the Bible means is not a free-for-all. It's not what does it mean to you, what does it mean to me, and you get in a Bible study, and it means 10 different things to 10 different people. No, it meant something. To the people who heard it, it meant one thing. And the goal of Bible study is to determine what did it mean to them because it's not going to mean to me something that it never meant. It will mean something in its context. Now, I don't want to discourage anybody and for you to think, well, I can't really get into the Bible unless I'm going to... Go at it fully. The Bible has, in, what, in gardening, all kinds of things that you could call volunteers. Those are the, you that the garden. What's a volunteer? It's just there. It, it's so plain and easy. It doesn't take a lot of understanding for much of what's in the Bible. When it says, do all things without murmuring and disputing. You know what that means in Greek? Amen, right there. Lori knows Greek. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. How long is it going to take you to learn to live that verse? It's a volunteer. Oh, how about trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding? Is that a volunteer? We got it. I read that verse. I do it every day, right? Oh, my goodness. There's so much of the Bible that just reading it will give you a treasure of a lifetime and transform your heart. Um, Mark Twain, who doesn't claim to be a believer that I know of, said it's not the part of the Bible that I don't understand that bothers me. It's the parts that I do understand. You see, there's so much of the Bible that's just a volunteer. But I will say, there's so much of the Bible that it's treasure to be mine to be looked into, to discover, to find depths that you didn't realize. How many of you have been saved more than a year? More than 30 years. Okay, those that have been saved more than 30 years, have you got to the end of Bible study and exhausted everything in the scriptures and now you're not learning anymore? No. You see, it's a lifetime of learning. So the tools that we're talking about today can help you if you're at the beginning of the journey, but they're the same tools that can help you if you're mining for gold 40 years into your Christian life. And doing this is important that when we come to the scriptures, we get it right. Because the stakes are high when it comes to biblical interpretation. I want to take the verse that we looked at last week um, in 2 Timothy, and I want to look at the context of that a little bit because it paints a picture. It's not just saying, here's what you do to be an approved workman rightly handling the word of the truth. There's some uh, uh, high stakes associated with it. So if we start before that verse, and Timothy, if you look at context, was, was an, a newbie in ministry. He was a young man, a little bit timid. He needed some encouragement. Paul's the seasoned veteran. He's writing to him to fan the flame that's in him, to, to, to let God's spirit out. And, and here's some things you need to know as you are stepping out into ministry because you're kind of a timid sort of guy. You need some encouragement. 
So it says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So words are the issue here. And in context, the words are most likely scripture, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, if somebody doesn't handle it properly, the comparative situation is found in the next verses. But avoid irreverent babble. Now, I wouldn't really want to have my life measured and at the end of it says, you know, everything you did with the word of God was nothing but irreverent babble. But if I'm not studying it and rightly dividing it, the comparative situation is irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Getting the Bible right, interpreting it right, has some very high stakes. The alternative, irreverent babble something that has extreme, extremely dangerous type thing. Just a couple ideas right from the verse. These people who didn't study the Bible right but were still teaching, they were misguided in their direction. They led people into more and more ungodliness. The scriptures say, don't be many of you teachers knowing that we will receive the greater judgment. Because when the word of God is mishandled, we are playing with the hearts and minds of those around us, not just ourselves. So the first thing is misguided in its direction when you don't handle the word of God properly. It's exponential in its influence. It says if you do that, this babble, this wrong teaching that comes out is going to spread like gangrene. And if you use some of the study Bibles with it, some of your Bibles uh, will say, say in it that it will pasture. In other words, when you have a cow and the cow gets really big, you say, wow, that has some good pasture. You know, that's been eating really good. And this irreverent babble is going to be like a cow and it's just gone out into the fields and grazed and grazed and gotten bigger and bigger like gangrene. When I don't handle the word of God properly, the fallout is exponential. It's also, when I don't handle the word of God correctly, it's deceptive in its impact. How many of you ever got lost on the road? How many of you will not ask for directions? And you don't want to hear the person in the passenger seat? If you had only listened, you, you know, you, you get lost. And when you're lost, you didn't know you were getting lost. You didn't get behind the wheel and say, you know what? Time to get lost. I do it every trip. Why not now? And, and you just all of a sudden say, I'm going to turn here. I'm going to go over there. And then when I'm done, I can say, I'm really lost now. You don't know you're getting lost. It's deceptive. Wrong doctrine, holding the, using the Bible the wrong way is deceptive because you wind up in a place you never thought you would, and you're lost because the scriptures are the compass. And when I don't handle them properly, it's very deceptive. I swerve from the truth. Literally, it means they've lost their way. And finally, it's destructive. 
in its consequence. Upsetting means overturning or destroying the faith of some. That's a horrific situation to be in. That's why the scriptures warn pastors and teachers, anyone who would speak on behalf of the Lord very sternly. That's why the scriptures say, you know what? It's better to have a millstone put around your neck to be thrown into sea than to offend one of these little ones. And it's not just children. It's his, his children rightly handling the word of God. So that comes to the point of context and how important it is in Bible study. Now, this is a, a drawing. You have it in your notes. But context study can be huge. And there are tools to help you with every one of these. But as you get into these and use them, they bring a depth to the scriptures that you would never have. And they actually help interpret the scriptures we're going to look at in a minute. You start with where you are, that verse. That verse is part of a paragraph. So when we say never read a Bible verse, read a paragraph at least. And we're going to look at that. As, then you get the entire book. This paragraph that has this verse is in a whole book. Well, how does it fit into that book? Is it part of an argument? Is it part of a parenthesis? Is it the main point? You look at that. And then go one step further. His other writings. What did this particular, what did Paul say in his other writings as a larger context? How about the whole New Testament? Then the entire Bible. How does this book fit into the big picture? The scarlet thread of redemption, the story of, of God and his gospel. How does it fit in? How about geography? Is there anything important about where this was said? At what time it was said? Or historically, what was going on in the whole world? Was this countercultural in its day? Was this like such a big deal that Paul said this, that there's no other thing in the world going on at the time you can compare it to? Was this ground, uh, earth-shattering, groundbreaking stuff? And the cultural background. There are tools that can help you put all of this together because when the scriptures were spoken, they were spoken to a people in a culture, in a time in history, under certain circumstances. And the better I can put myself into those places, the better my understanding of Scripture will be. We all crave context. we got two groups of guys in the church that go out and do silly things. We've got the fin guys that like to fish. Now, if you've ever been around Brad, is Brad here today? I think he's on the road traveling. Okay. When Brad catches a fifth fish, it takes 30 seconds. But how long does it take Brad to tell you about the fish he caught? It could take 30 minutes. Now, why is that? Because there's a context. There's a story. There's what he was using. There's who he was with. There was the fight. There was what he had for breakfast. There's the, this whole big story in one fish. When the fun guys go out and they come back, you want a context because you figure Jeff's going to get hurt and that's kind of there, but you want to know, like, how many cars was he jumping this time? You want to know the story. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> he wanted to be a sermon illustration. He's like, I want to do something good. He asked me this morning, talk about me, please. Uh, you know, you want to know the story. Context brings life and understanding, and so it is with the Bible, the Word of God. A couple tips, and then we're going to illustrate as we close doing this method and using context to help interpret the Word of God. First thing is, context tips, read at least a paragraph when you're in the Scripture. Nothing less than that. 
always read that much, preferably more, because it's going to put that particular verse in its truest sense. Meaning flows from the top down. In other words, from the bigger portions of Scripture to the smaller portions. Whenever you see a big chunk of verses, the meaning of a verse is going to flow out of the bigger, larger section. Block out verse numbers to whatever degree you can. Contrary to some people's opinions, the verses weren't there when the Bible was written. They were added hundreds of years later. When you get a letter written to you, let's say it's a love letter, do they put little verse numbers in it? It's a flow. It's got something to say in its flow. The verse numbers sometimes, although they help us find it in the Bible together, they can obscure the flow of thought. If you can sometimes, there's something called a reader's Bible. Look up a reader's Bible when you get your phone out and get one of those. ESV has a reader's Bible. I know others do. They'll take the verse numbers out, and it'll be in paragraph format. Read it like a letter. Read it as if someone, you just opened your envelope in the mailbox, and that was the letter. Read it. Sometimes even the chapters um, hinder you in getting the flow of what the biblical author really wanted to say. So if you can read through it, don't. The verses sometimes make you think, isolated thought, isolated thought, isolated thought. No. It's a continuity, and there are relationships in it. When you read a verse or you look at the Bible, recognize the kind of literature that there is. If you look at one of those books in the back and you get one of those, they will give you some guidelines on interpreting different kinds of biblical literature. Um, it could be a psalm, a parable. You're going to interpret differently than you do an allegory or a narrative, um, any of those kind of things. There's just so many different kinds. There's poetry in the Bible. Well, you're not going to interpret poetry the same way you do when Paul is like commanding how you're supposed to live. That will be interpreted using a different set of rules, just like any kind of literature. When you interpret poetry written by anyone, you're going to find you're not going to approach it the same way you would as a scientific paper. There's different ways to look at it. So determine kind of literature. Look for the meaning, not uniqueness. Some people want to come into the Bible and like, I found something that no one ever found before. Really? In 2,000 years, God's hidden it. And now you get to find it? Oh, you are so special. And some people come up with these unique interpretations when the meaning is plain and obviously there. There are some that believe there's secret messages encoded in the scriptures. Oh, my goodness. God put his communication in human language, and he didn't hide it between the lines. He didn't put it so that only certain smart people could figure it out. The truth of God is there for everybody. It's open to all people. He didn't cloak it. He didn't veil it. It is there. It's available. Don't look for something unique. Chances are, if you find it, you're out on a limb and you're involved in irreverent babble. Things that are just going to take people away from the obvious, plain meaning of Scripture. The Bible is literature. There's continuity, structure, flow, logic, relationships. It's a story. It's not a collection of isolated verses. A story written at a specific time in history and a specific culture. 
And one of the hard things is when we come to the scriptures is to empty our minds of presuppositions. We will bring something to the Bible because of our culture and because of where we come from. Now, I might get in trouble here when I pick on this, but how many of you have a manger scene at home? Aren't they cool? I mean, it just doesn't make you feel Christmassy. You see the manger, and, and you see Mary and Joseph. And if you're going to do a Christmas play, one of the key characters is always who? Beside Jesus, he's cool, he's always there. And shepherds, and but when they come, and Mary first comes, where do they go first? And they get rejected by the innkeeper, right? And there's always an innkeeper. There's always an innkeeper's wife. I wonder if you look at the scriptures, if you'd ever see an innkeeper in the Bible anywhere. Is there one? And as you study culture and you study the background, it's very possible that our picture of the nativity may not have been the way it actually was. And I have a 60-second video here that's going to show you, looking a little bit at Greek, looking a little bit at historical context, what it might have been and where Jesus may have really been born. We all know how a nativity scene looks. Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus in a stable, surrounded by assorted barnyard animals, shepherds, and three wise men. But it may have been more consoling than we imagine. In the Gospel of Luke, there is no mention of an innkeeper or barn. In Bethlehem, the city of David, the royal lineage of Joseph to David suggests that someone would make extra room for Mary and Joseph. Indoor mangers have been found in the daytime living quarters of first century Jewish households. They would lodge animals of value or shelter them from the cold. This is unlike the modern perception of a barn manger that is detached from the domestic setting. The Greek word used for the inn that was full also translates to guest room. It's the same word for the upper room of the Last Supper. In settling for the ground room with the animals, the focus shifts from exclusion and outcast to invitational. All fine details aside, Jesus is the center of our story and came to be the center of our lives as we remember his birth and look forward to his return. some of you are mad at me. You just ruined my manger scene. You just ruined my Christmas. That's not my intent. You want to keep a manger scene, that's fine. But what I'm saying is when you study the scriptures and you look into it more deeply, you find culturally a manger could very well have been the bottom of a house. That word used for in can be translated guest room. And it was the same word used of Jesus in the upper room. So it may have been very, very different. Now, if I were the person in the guest room that kicked Jesus out to the manger, I don't want to be that person. But, but the point of the matter is culture, historical background, the original language is study can bring things to light that we may have come to the scriptures with a presupposition. That nasty innkeeper, how dare he? Well, that may not have been the actual way that it was. So it's just an example that studying context can make a difference in the picture that we come away from with the word of God. Context determines the meaning 
of words in the Bible. That's why, well, context determines the meaning of almost any word. That's why puns are funny, because it takes a definition where it doesn't really belong. Now, some of you think puns is just stupid father jokes. But, but puns, I think, are extremely funny because of the way that they're used. Now, like, for instance, in the English language, does anybody know what word in the English language has more definitions than any other word? Any guesses? It's the Guinness Book of World Record. It was, and in Guinness, it's the word set in English, has 430 definitions. Now, this is, this is free. This doesn't cost you any extra. The Oxford English Dictionary, though, in 2037 is going to be rewritten, and set's going to be replaced by a new word, and it will be the word run as the Guinness Book of World Record, because it has 645 definitions in English. How do you determine the meaning of run in the context? Well, how is it used? So it is with the scripture. When we read a verse, a meaning may occur to us, but how do we know that we are correct in the meaning that occurred to us? We can look at a Bible dictionary or any dictionary, but that only gives you options. So I want to give you a tool, and this isn't the only tool in helping interpret Scripture, but it's one that 90% of the time I think you'll find very, very helpful. It's something Gregory Kokel calls the paraphrase principle. Paraphrase principle. Replace the text in question or the word in question with your paraphrase or your definition and see if the passage still makes sense in light of the larger context. We're going to do one exercise like that to get together today just to see how it works. So let's take a verse, and we're going to say, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And in that, we're going to say, um, what does spirit mean there? What does that mean? Because you're going to find a lot of churches today that believe that there are demons that are called spirits of fear. And this spirit, anytime you're afraid, it's because you have a spirit of fear, and that spirit of fear needs to be cast out. So, well, what does spirit mean here? Well, we'll get our Bible dictionary out, and we're going to use this paraphrase idea to see how this works. Spirit, you get a Bible dictionary, it'll say sometimes that word can be translated wind. So let's put it in there. For God has not given us a wind of fear but of wind of power and love of a sound mind. Sound right? It's like, no, that, that, that's not it. Well, the dictionary says it can also be translated breath. Let's put it in there. For God has not given us a breath of fear, but a breath of power and of love and of sound mind. Breath of fear? Wait, I've heard bad breath? Yes, I understand that. Breath of fear? Not really. How about the immaterial part of us? The spirit of man. Well, if a God has not given us a man, material, immaterial spirit of fear, but an immaterial spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, I know a lot of people, and their spirit is not one of a sound mind. I'm telling you that right now. Just experience itself will tell you that that's not the typical human spirit 
bunch of children together, don't they always act lovingly together because they've been given a spirit of love within them? Just take one of their toys, and you're going to find out what violence really means. You know, it, this, no, that just doesn't seem to work. How about demon or angel? That word spirit sometimes is translated that way. For God has not given us a demon of fear, but a demon of power and of love and of a sound mind. No, it doesn't quite work that way. Well, what if we change demon at the beginning? He hasn't given us a demon of fear, but he's given us an angel of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's when you let the scripture interpret scripture. Do you see any place in the Bible where it talks about an angel of, of love or of power being what gives us our strength, that gives us that, that virtue? It's like, no, it doesn't jive with the rest of the scripture. But there's a fifth definition. It's a disposition, a feeling, or a temper of mind, it can mean. So we put it back in, for God has not given us a, or given us a disposition of fear, but a disposition of power and love and of a sound mind or temper of mind. All of a sudden, when I see it that way, it begins to make more sense. So the context helps determine that. Now, this one's fairly straightforward, but there's a lot of other ones that as you go to the scriptures, you can do that with to help see what that particular verse is talking about. And in your notes, if you didn't get one, make sure you do. I gave you some examples at the end for you to look at because there's some verses that we quote all the time and we hear people use them, but if you actually look at the context, you're gonna find the way we're using them isn't necessarily completely accurate. There is something different about them. So those are for you to be able to do on your own. But that's just one tool. There's other things to help you get the context, to help interpret the scriptures. There's plenty of tools that are out there. I would encourage you, to whatever place you are in Bible study, when you wrote down your method, is to step it up, to take it to the next level. And that will mean different things for different people. For some of you, it's going to be a step into some of these study tools. For others, it's just going to be reading a bigger portion of Scripture at one time and being more mindful of the flow of thought. But whatever it is for you, the Word of God is worth stepping up to, to getting to a place where I will invest more energy in understanding it. And as I get this step down, hopefully, you're going to have a hunger for more. And you're going to say, okay, I got that, I'm reading this, but I really want to put it together. I want to dig deeper. I want to understand better. And I would love to help anybody, if that's your problem, to be able to say, here's a tool. Here's what we can do. Here's how you can fit it together. Because the scriptures are the word of God for our lives here and now. They are the revelation of who he is. We would not know it without him. It is the definer of your life. What, re, what works and doesn't work, and to be able to interpret and understand that. If I wrote you a letter today, you wouldn't start in the middle and just read one sentence and say, oh, I got a letter from Dan today. I read it. You didn't read it. You looked at it. But absorb all that the Bible has to say. If you're just starting out in your Christian faith and this seems like a giant wave that's going to swallow you up, 
Let's talk about it. There's some, some, some books that you can use. Very simple, one-page context explanations of the book of the Bible you're reading. And it might give you an outline. Whatever it is, wherever you are with Scripture, step it up. Go one step more. And if you had that meter that you see in your notes there, and you say, well, my Bible study is fair. Well, why can't it be good? Your Bible study good? Why can't it be excellent? Dig in the Word of God as he wrote it, to interpret it, what it meant to the people of the day, so that you can apply it to your life where you live. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces your heart. If it has that ability to change you, we ought to be dedicated to it. We ought to be immersed in it. One of the problems is that often we don't truly believe in our heart of hearts, that the scriptures is everything we're told it is. If I told you I had a treasure map for $500,000 and it's buried somewhere, you would give diligence to interpreting the map, to knowing where the money is. And you're like, give me that now. And you would pour over it. I have to believe the Bible's got more than $500,000 worth of value. May we be people who pour over it and have a hunger, and thirst for the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us so much, that your word um, is, is a tool, it is a revelation, it is a picture, it is a communication uh, of who you are and what your heart is all about. Father, it's the blueprint for all of human history and the culmination of it leading into eternity. Father, when we read it, we can rest because we know you've got it. You've got the plan, and you're working everything after the counsel of your own will that nothing touches our lives, whether it's touched your heart first, Father. And help us to be people who want to rightly divide the word of truth. Keep us from irreverent babbling. Help us to know that no scripture is of a private interpretation, but you've put all of the treasure in front of all of us equally that we might be able to dig in and discover the truths that you've given to us. Help us, Lord, to love you and love your word. In Jesus' name, amen.